wonder if God got a plan for everyone I wonder if I could take a second run Cause I carry on getting sad and getting stuck What I wouldn't give for a life that doesn't suck I'm a moving target Welcome back to S3 Podcast, episode 57. I hope that you all had an amazing weekend. I hope you spent time with family, friends, and enjoyed this lovely weather that we've been having so far. <coughs> um, hope that it continues. So, yeah, anyway, um, I hope all of you have been well, been staying safe still, still taking precautions and everything. Um, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at s3podcast underscore. Also, a little bit of an update. I have decided to switch the posting time from... It was 9am PST, which was 4pm UK time. I have now switched it to 2pm UK time, which is 6am PST time to make it better for me and you know hopefully it will suit all of you as well but without further ado today's episode is all about Daniel Ellsberg the um, whistleblower so let's get right into it (coughs) Ellsberg was born in Chicago Illinois on April 7th 1931 the son of Harry and Adele Charsky Ellsberg. His parents were Ashkenazi Jews who had converted to Christian science. He was raised as a Christian scientist. He grew up in Detroit and attended the Cranbrook School in nearby Bloomfield Hills. His mother wanted him to be a concert pianist, but he stopped playing in July 1948, two years after both his mother and sister were killed when his father fell asleep at the wheel and crashed the family car into a bridge abutment. Ellsberg entered Harvard College on a scholarship, graduating summa cum laude with an A.B. in economics in 1952. He studied at the University of Cambridge for a year on a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, then returned to Harvard for graduate school in 1954. He enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps and earned a commission. He served as a platoon leader and company commander in the 2nd Marine Division and was discharged in 1957 as a first lieutenant. Ellsberg returned to Harvard as a junior fellow in the Society of Fellows for two years, Rand Corporation and Ph.D. Ellsberg began working as a strategic analyst at the Rand Corporation for the summer of 1958 and then permanently a year later in 1959. He concentrated on nuclear strategy and the command and control of nuclear weapons. Ellsberg completed a PhD in economics from Harvard in 1962. His dissertation on decision theory was based on a set of thought experiments that showed that decisions under conditions of uncertainty or ambiguity generally may not be consistent with well-defined subjective probabilities. 
now known as the Ellsberg Paradox, this formed the basis of a large literature that has developed since the 1980s, including approaches such as Sokay Expected Utility and Infogap Decision Theory. Ellsberg worked in the Pentagon from August 1964 under Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara as Special Assistant to Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, John McNaughton, at this point of Lyndon Johnson's escalation into the Vietnam War. Ellsberg would later discover the lies and subsequent cover-up of the non-attacks upon the USS Maddox in the Gulf of Tonkin by North Vietnam, which led to bombing raids into North Vietnam on August 2nd and 4th, 1964, under orders by President Lyndon B. Johnson. This unprovoked attack upon North Gulf of Tonkin to North Vietnam, which led to bombing Sorry, Miss. This unprovoked attack upon North Vietnam followed Senator Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign statement, where he stated that Johnson was soft on communism. No matter where it is, Johnson's actions risked bringing Chinese forces into the war. <coughs> he then went to South Vietnam for two years, working for General Edward Lansdale as a member of the State Department. On his return from South Vietnam, Ellsberg resumed working at RAND in 1967. He contributed to a top-secret study of classified documents on the conduct of the Vietnam War that had been commissioned by Defence Secretary McNamara. McNamara. These documents, completed in 1968, later became known collectively as the Pentagon Papers, named after the pumpkin papers of the His Chambers case. Through study of this body of US government records, Ellsberg came to understand about the Vietnam War that it was no more a civil war after 1955 or 1960 than it had been during the US supported French attempts at colonial reconquest, a war in which one side was entirely equipped and paid by a foreign power, which dictated the nature of the local regime in its own interest. Was not a civil war to say that we had interfered in what is really a civil war, as most American academic writers and evil liberal critics of the war to this day simply screened a more painful reality and was as much as myth as the earlier official one of aggression from the North in terms of the UN Charter and of our own avowed ideals. It was a war of foreign aggression, American aggression. So, <clears throat> at this point, he was, you know, developing his own thoughts, you know, of how he saw things, and this path that he went down, maybe unknowingly or knowingly, led him down to, you know, become now known as, you know, a whistleblower. Now, I know the term whistleblower has a, doesn't exactly have the most, you know, welcoming of names, and it's misused, probably. But, you know, he felt that he was correcting what he was doing, and, you know... You gotta give the guy his dues, 
you know, for what he did. I know a lot of people in the, gov- in the government probably still despise him for what he did, but he saw something wrong, and he did what he did. Disaffection with the Vietnam War. By 1969, Ellsberg began attending anti-war events, while still remaining in his position at Rand. In April 1968, Ellsberg attended a Princeton conference on revolution in a changing world, where he met Gandhian peace activist Janaki Soneri from India, who had a profound influence on him, with Akbar Ahmed, a Pakistani fellow at the Adyar Stevenson Institute, later to be indicted with Rev. Philip Bergan for anti-war activism. Ellsberg particularly recalls Sonari saying, In my world there are no enemies, and that she gave me a vision. As a Gandhian of a different way of, ra- of living and resistance of exercising power non-violently, he experienced an epiphany, attending a War Researchers League conference at Haverford College in August 1969, listening to a speech given by a draft resistor named Randy Keller, who said he was very excited that he would soon be able to join his friends in prison. Ellsberg described his reaction, and he said this very calmly. I hadn't known that he was about to be sentenced for draft resistance. It hit me as a total surprise and shock, because I heard his words in the midst of actually feeling proud of my country, listening to him, and then I heard he was going to prison. It wasn't what he said exactly that changed my worldview. It was the example he was setting with his life. How his words in general showed that he was a stellar American, and that he was going to jail as a very deliberate choice, because he thought it was the right thing to do. There was no question in my mind that my government was involved in an unjust war that was going to continue and get larger. Thousands of young men were dying each year. I left the auditorium and found a deserted men's room. I sat on the floor and cried for over an hour, just sobbing. The only time in my life I reached, I reacted to something like that. Decades later, reflecting on Keller's decision, Ellsberg said, Randy Keller never thought his going to prison would end the war. If I hadn't met Randy Keller, it wouldn't have occurred to me to copy the Pentagon Papers. His action spoke to me as no mere words would have done. He put the right question in my mind at the right time. After leaving Rand, Ellsberg was employed as a senior research associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Center for International Studies from 1970 to 1972. <clears throat> and so, you know, if you look back in in people's lives, especially if they work in the government or, you know, they become outspoken, like especially in the, um, you know, the UFO world, like, you know, Area 52, there you have people speaking out because they know what, what, what really went on there. You know, and they are, you know, not giving a fuck. Right, they're going to speak out because they know what they saw. Right, and there's people like this who, you know, and again, you can call them, you can call them a whistleblower. Right, you can call them whatever. But they're doing what's right to them. 
and he went to a meeting, and he, you know, obviously, like, you know, he was, he was reflecting on what Keller said, and he, you know, it still made him do what he wanted to do, which was release the Pentagon Papers, which is the next point. In late 1969, with the assistant of his former Rand Corporation colleague, Anthony Russo, Ellsberg secretly made several sets of photocopies of the classified documents to which he had access. These later became known as the Pentagon Papers. They revealed that early on the government had knowledge that the war, as then resourced, could most likely not be won. Further, as an editor of the New York Times was to write much later, these documents demonstrated, among other things, that the Johnson administration had systematically lied, not only to the public but also to Congress, about a subject of transcendent transcendent national interest and significance. Shortly after Ellsberg copied the documents, he resolved to meet some of the people who had influenced both his change of heart on the war and his decision to act. One of them was Randy Keller, another was the poet Gary Snyder, whom he had met in Kyoto in 1960, and with whom he had argued about US foreign policy. Ellsberg was finally prepared to concede that Gary Snyder had been right about both the situation and the need for action against it, release and publication. Throughout 1970, Ellsberg covertly attempted to persuade a few sympathetic US senators, among them J. William Fubright, Chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and George McGovern, a leading opponent of the war to release the papers on the Senate floor because a senator could not be prosecuted for anything he said on the record before the Senate. Ellsberg allowed some copies of his documents to circulate privately, including among scholars at the Institute for Policy Studies. Ellsberg also shared documents with the New York Times correspondent Neil Sheehan, who wrote a story based on what he had received both directly from Ellsberg and from contacts at IPS. On Sunday, June 13th, 1971, the Times published the first of nine excerpts from and commentaries on the 7,000-page collection. For 15 days, the Times was prevented from publishing its articles by court order requested by the Nixon administration. Meanwhile, while eluding an FBI management for 13 days, Ellsberg leaked documents to Washington Post. On June 30th, the US Supreme Court ordered free resumption of publication by the Times, New York Times, Co. vs. United States. Two days prior to the Supreme Court decision, Ellsberg publicly omitted his role in releasing the Pentagon Papers to the press. On June 29th, 1971, US Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska entered 4,100 pages of the papers into the record of his subcommittee on public buildings and grounds, pages which he had not had received from Ellsberg via Ben Badikian, then an editor of the Washington Post. Now we get to the fallout. The release of these papers was politically embarrassing, 
not only to those involved in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, but also to the incumbent Nixon administration. Nixon's overall office tape from June 14th, 1971, shows H.R. Haldeman describing the situation to Nixon. Um, um, <clears throat> I hope you can hear that, um, but Rumsfeld was making this point this morning. To the ordinary, ordinary guy, all this is a bunch of gobbledygook, but out of the gobbledygook comes a very clear thing. You can't trust the government, you can't believe what they say, and you can't rely on their judgement and the implicit inability in infallibility of presidents, which has been an accepted thing in America, is badly hurt by this because it shows that people do things the president wants to do even though it's wrong, and the president can be wrong. John Mitchell, Nixon's Attorney General, almost immediately issued a telegram to the Times ordering that it halt publication. The Times refused, and the government brought suit against it. Although the Times eventually won the case before the Supreme Court, prior to that, an apparatus court ordered that the, time, that the Times temporarily halt further publication. This was the first time the federal government was able to restrain the publication of a major newspaper since the presidency of Abraham Lincoln during the U.S. Civil War. Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers to 17 other newspapers in rapid succession. The right of the press to publish the papers was upheld in New York Times, Co. versus United States. The Supreme Court ruling has been called one of the modern pillars of First Amendment rights, with respect to freedom. In response to the leaks, Nixon White House staffers began a campaign against further leaks and against Ellsberg personally. Of course, you know, you've got this man, Daniel Ellsberg, who is clearly speaking out, he's clearly leaking, you know, these confidential papers with which he had access to, you know, because, you know, he knows that the government is covering up, you know, they're not, they're not telling, telling the truth, and so, therefore, he is risking his, he's risking his reputation, He's risking his livelihood, right? But he's sticking to his guns, metaphorically speaking. And he's saying, and he's giving them a middle finger. And I say, no, I'm going to do what I'm going to, I'm going to release these papers. And I'm going to continue to do so until everybody hears it. And so, you know, of course they're going to try and, you know, stop him. Adas, Egilberg and David Young, under the supervision of John Ehrlichman created the White House Plumbers, which would later lead to the Watergate burglaries. Richard Holbrook, a friend of Ellsberg, came to see him as one of the, those accidental characters of history 
who saw the pattern of a whole era and thought he was the triggering mechanism for events with Woodlink, Vietnam and Watergate in one continuous 1961 to 1975 story. And I know that, well, I don't, I've heard that the whole Watergate thing was a total mess as well. Um, fielding break-in. In August 1971, Krog and Young met with G. Gordon Liddy and he Howard Hunt in a basement office in the old executive office building. Hunt and Liddy recommended a covert operation to get a motherload of information about Osberg's mental state in order to discredit him. Krog and Young sent a memo to Erdogan seeking his approval for a covert operation to be undertaken to examine all the medical files that were held by Ellsberg's psychiatrist. Lewis Fielding, Erdogan approved under the condition that it be done under your assurance that it is not to be traceable. So they even went so they went down even further to you know discredit him with you know, looking for his you know mental state records. This is this is how low they went. On September third, nineteen seventy one, the burglary of Fielding's office titled Hunt Liddy Special Project Number One in Irksman notes was carried out by White House plumbers. Hunt Liddy, Eugenio Martinez, Felipe Di Diego and Bernard Parker. The latter three were all had been recruited CIA agents. The plumbers found Ellsberg files, but it apparently did not contain the potentially embarrassing information they or they sought. As they left it discarded on the floor of Fielding's office, Hunt and Liddy subsequently planned to break into Fielding's home, but Ehrlichman did not approve the second burglary. The break-in was not known to Ellsberg or, the, or to the public until it came to light during Ellsberg and Rousseau's trial in 1973. So, next, I'm going to take a quick pause, have a drink, and then we'll continue. So, the <coughs> excuse me, trial and dismissal. On June 28th, 1971, two days before a Supreme Court ruling saying that a federal judge had ruled incorrectly about the rights of the New York Times to publish the Pentagon Papers. <coughs> Ellsberg publicly surrendered to the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts in Boston in admitting to giving the documents to the press, Ellsberg said. <coughs> I felt that as an American citizen, as a responsible citizen, I could no longer cooperate in concealing this information from the American public. I did this clearly at my own jeopardy and I am prepared to answer to all the consequences of this decision. He and Russo faced charges under the Espionage Act of 1917, and other charges including theft and conspiracy. Carrying a total maximum sentence of 115 years for Ellsberg, 35 years for Russo, their trial commenced in Los Angeles on January 3, 1973 presided over by U.S. District Judge William Matthew Byrne, Jr. Ellsberg tried to claim that the documents were illegally classified to keep them not from an, from an enemy, but from the American public. However, that argument was ruled irrelevant. 
Ellsberg was silenced before he could begin. Ellsberg said in 2014 that his lawyer, exasperated, said he'd never heard of a case where a defendant was not permitted to tell us to tell the jury why he did what he did. The judge responded, responded sorry, about your hearing one now, and so it has been with every subsequent whistleblower under indictment. In spite of being effectively denied a defence, Ellsberg began to see events turn in his favour. When the break-in of Fielding's office was revealed to Judge Byrne in a memo on April 26, Byrne ordered it to be shared with the defence. On May 9th, further evidence of illegal wiretapping against Ellsberg was revealed in court. <coughs> the FBI had recorded numerous conversations between Morton and Alpine and Ellsberg without a court order, and furthermore, the prosecution had failed to share this evidence with the defence. During the trial, Byrne also revealed that he personally met twice with John Ekman, who offered him directorship of the FBI. Byrne said he refused to consider the offer while the, while the Ellsberg case was pending, though he was criticised for even agreeing to meet with Ekman during the case. So you could have had a bit of a bribery there. Because of the gross governmental misconduct and illegal evidence gathering, and the defence by Leonard Boudin and Harvard Law School professor Charles Nesson, Judge Byrne dismissed all charges against Ellsberg and Russo on May 11th, 1973. So this was a full, so this was a full two years later, after the government claimed it had lost records of wiretapping against Ellsberg. Byrne ruled that the totality of the circumstances of this case, which I have only briefly sketched, offend a sense of justice. The bizarre events have incurably affected the prosecution of this case. As a result of the revelations involving the Watergate scandal, John Ehrlichman, H. R. Haldeman, Richard Clendenst and John Dean were forced out of office on April 30th, and all ruled later be convicted of crimes related to Watergate. Eric Crow later pleaded guilty to conspiracy and White House counsel Charles Coulson pleaded no contest for obstruction of justice in the burglary. Harpoon case. Harpoon case, sorry. It was also revealed in 1973 during Ellsberg's trial that the telephone calls of Morton Harpoon, a member of the US National Security Council staff suspected of leaking information about the secret bombing of Cambodia to the New York Times were being recorded by the FBI at the request of Henry Kissinger to J. Edgar Hoover. Halperin and his family sued several officers claiming the wiretap violated their Fourth Amendment rights and Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and State Streets Act of 1968. The court agreed that Richard Nixon, John Mitchell and H.R. Haldeman had violated the Harpoons' Fourth Amendment rights and awarded them $1 in nominal charges, damages, that, okay, promised Ellsberg's neutralisation proposal. Ellsberg later claimed that after his trial ended, Watergate prosecutor William H. Merrill informed him of an aborted plot by Liddy and the plumbers just have 12 Cuban-Americans who had previously worked for the CIA totally incapacitate, 
Ellsberg when he appeared to, at a public rally. It's unclear whether they were meant to assassinate Ellsberg or merely to hospitalise him. In his autobiography, Liddy describes an Ellsberg neutralisation proposal originating from Howard Hunt, which involved drugging Ellsberg with LSD by dissolving it in his soup at a fundraising dinner in Washington. In order to have Ellsberg incoherent by the time he was to speak, and thus make him appear a near burnt out drug case, and discredit him. The plot involved waiters from the Miami Cuban community, according to Liddy. When the plan was finally approved, there was no longer enough lead time to get the Cuban waiters up from their Miami hotel and into place for the Washington Hotel dinner was to take place and the plan was put into abeyance pending another opportunity. Later activism and views. Since the end of the Vietnam War, Ellsberg has continued his political activism, giving lecture tours and speaking out about current events. Reflecting on his time in government, Ellsberg has said the following, based on his extensive access to classified material. The public is lied to every day by the president, by his spokespeople, by his officers. If you can't handle the thought that the president lies to the public for all kinds of reasons, you couldn't stay in a government at that level, or you're made aware of it a week. The fact is, presidents rarely say the whole truth. Essentially, never say the whole truth of what they expect and what they're doing, and what they believe and why they're doing it, and rarely refrain from lying actually about these matters. Anti-war activism. In an, in an interview with Democracy Now! on May 18th, 2018, Ellsberg was critical of US intervention overseas, especially in the Middle East, stating, I think in Iraq, America has never faced up to the number of people who have died because of our invasion. Our aggression against Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 30 years, since we first inspired a CIA-sponsored jihad against the Soviets there, and led to the invasion by the Soviets. What we've done to the Middle East has been hell. Activism against the US-led war against Iraq. During the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, he warned of a possible Tonkin Gulf scenario that could be used to justify going to war and called on government insiders to go public with the information to counter the, Brit- the Bush administration pro-war propaganda campaign, praising Scott Ritter for his efforts in that regard. He later supported the whistleblowing efforts of British GCHQ translator Catherine Gunn and called on others to leak any papers that reveal government deception about the invasion. Ellsberg also testified at the 2004 conscientious objector hearing of Camilo Meja at Fort Steele, Oklahoma. Ellsberg was arrested in November 2005 for violating a county ordinance for trespassing while protecting, protesting against George W. Bush's conduct of the Iraq War. He is a member of Campaign for Peace and Democracy. Ellsberg criticised the arrest of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who had exposed American war crimes in Iraq. Activism against US military action against Iraq. In September 2006, Ellsberg wrote in Harper's Magazine, that he hoped someone would leak information about a potential U.S. invasion of Iran. 
before the invasion happened to stop the war. Ellsberg, Ellsberg sorry, called for further leaks following the release of informative information on the acceleration of US-sponsored anti-government activity. In Iran, that was leaked to journalist Seymour Hearst. In November 2007, Ellsberg was interviewed by Brad Friedman on his blog in regard to former FBI translator turned whistleblower Sybil Edmonds. I say what she has is far more explosive than the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg told Friedman. In a speech on March 30, 2008, in San Francisco's Unitarian Universalist Church, Ellsberg observed that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does not have the authority to declare impeachment off the table, as she had done with respect to George W. Bush. The oath of office taken by members of Congress required them to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. He also pointed out that under Article VI of the U.S. Constitution, Treaties including the United Nations Charter and International Labour Rights accords that the United States has signed become the supreme law of the land and that neither the states, the president, nor the Congress have the power to break. For example, if the Congress votes to authorise an, an unprovoked attack on a sovereign nation, that authorisation would, wouldn't make the attack legal. A president citing the authorisation as just cause could be prosecuted in the International Criminal Court for War Crimes. Support for American Whistleblowers On December 9, 2010, Ellsberg appeared on the Colbert Report, where he commented that the existence of WikiLeaks helps to build a better government. On March 21, 2011, Ellsberg, along with 35 other demonstrators, was arrested during a demonstration outside the Marine Corps base Quantico, in protest of Manning's current detention at Marine Corps Brig Quantico. On June 10, 2013, Ellsberg published an, an editorial in the Guardian newspaper praising the actions of former Booz Allen worker Edward Snowden in revealing top secret surveillance programs of the NSA. Ellsberg believed that the United States had fallen into an abyss of total tyranny, but said that because of Snowden's revelations, I see the, I see the unexpected possibility of a way up and out of the abyss. In June 2013, Ellsberg and numerous celebrities appeared in a video showing support for Chelsea Manning. On June 17, 2010, Ellsberg was interviewed regarding the parallels between his actions in releasing the Pentagon Papers and those of private first-class Chelsea Manning, who was arrested by the US military in Iraq after allegedly providing to WikiLeaks a classified video showing US military helicopter gunships strafing and killing Iraqis, alleged to be civilians, including two Reuters journalists, Manning claimed to have provided WikiLeaks with secret videos of additional massacres of alleged civilians in Afghanistan, as well as 260,000 classified State Department cables. Ellsberg said that he fears for Manning and for Julian Assange, as he feared for himself after the initial publication of the Pentagon Papers. WikiLeaks initially said it had not received the cables, but did plan to post a video of an attack that killed 86 
to 145 Afghan civilians in the village of Gawani. Ellsberg expressed hope that either Assange or President Obama would post a video and expressed his strong support for Assange and Manning, whom he called two new heroes of mine. Democracy Now! devoted a substantial portion of its programme July 4th, 2013, to how the Pentagon Papers came to be came to be published by the Beacon Press told by Daniel Ellsberg and others. Ellsberg said there are hundreds of public officials right now who know that the public is being lied to about Iran. They all talk an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States, not the Commander-in-Chief, not superior officers. If they follow orders, they may become complicit in stating in starting an unnecessary war, if they are faithful to their oath, they could prevent that war. Exposing official lies could, however, carry a heavy personal cost, as they could be imprisoned for unlawful disclosure of classified information. In 2012, Ellsberg became one of the co-founders of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Ellsberg is a founding member of the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. In September 2015, Ellsberg and 27 other members of VIPS Steering Group wrote a letter to the President challenging a recently published book that claimed to rebuke the report of the United States Senate Intelligence Committee on the Central Intelligence Agency use of torture. In December 2015, Ellsberg publicly supported the Tor Anonymity Network referencing its utility for whistleblowing, in general for the maintenance of democracy via the First Amendment. In spring of 2019, WikiLeaks players Assange and Manning resurfaced in the news, with Assange being arrested and carried out from the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Manning twice subpoenaed to to testify. Weeks later, Assange was indicted on 18 charges under the 1917 Wartime Espionage Act. In 2020, Ellsberg testified in defence of Assange during Assange's extradition hearings. Ellsberg has spoken out vociferously against the threats to press freedom from such whistleblower prosecution. <coughs> Support for Occupy Movement On November 16, 2011, Ellsberg camped on the US Berkeley Sproul Plaza as part of an, of an effort to deport the Occupy Cowl Movement, the Doomsday Machine. In December 2017, Ellsberg published The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War. Planner, he said, that his primary job from 1958 until releasing the Pentagon Papers in 1971 was as a nuclear war planner for US Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon. He concluded US nuclear war policy was completely crazy and he could no longer live with himself without doing what he could to expose it, even if it meant he would spend the rest of his life in prison. However, he also felt that as long as the US was still involved in the Vietnam War, the US electorate would not likely listen to a discussion of nuclear war policy. He therefore copied two sets of documents, planning to release the first the Pentagon Papers and later documentation of nuclear war plans. 
However, the nuclear planning materials were hidden in a, land mil- in a landfill and then lost during an, un- an unexpected tropical storm. His overriding concerns are as follows. As long as the world maintains, maintains large nuclear arsenals, it is not a matter of if, but when. A nuclear war will occur. The vast majority of the population of an initiator state would likely starve to death during a nuclear autumn or a nuclear winter if they did not die early, earlier from retaliation or fallout. To prevent, to prevent, to preserve the ability of a nuclear weapon state to retaliate from a decapitation attack, and every country with nuclear weapons seems to have delegated broadly the authority to respond to an apparent nuclear attack. As an example of the third concern. Ellsberg discussed an interview he had in 1958 with a major who commanded a squadron of 12 F-100 fighter bombers at Kunsan Air Base, South Korea. His aircraft were equipped with Mark 28 thermonuclear weapons with a yield of 1.1 megatons, roughly half the explosive power of all the bombs dropped by the US in World War I, both in Europe and the Pacific. The Major said his official orders were to wait for orders from his superiors in Osan Air Base, South Korea, or in Japan before ordering his F-100s into the air. However, the Major or the major said the standard military doctrine required him to protect his forces. That meant that if he had reason to believe that a war had already begun when his communications with Osan and Japan were broken, he was required to launch his dozen F-100s with their thermonuclear weapons. They never practiced that launch because of the risk of an incident was too great. Ellsberg then asked what might happen if he gave such launch orders and and the sixth plane succumbed to a thermonuclear accident on the runway. After some thought, the Major agreed that the five planes already in the air would likely conclude that a nuclear war had begun, and they would likely deliver their warheads to their pre-assigned targets. The nuclear football, carried by an aide near the US president at all times, is primarily a piece of political theatre, a hoax, to keep the public ignorant of the real problems of a nuclear command and control, he said. In Russia, this included a semi-automatic dead-hand system, whereby a nuclear explosion in Moscow whether accidental or by a foreign state or terrorists, would induce lower-level officers to launch ICBMs toward targets. In the US, presumed to be the origin of such attacks, the first ICBMs launched in this way would beep a go signal to any ICBM sites they passed over, which would launch those other ICBMs without further human intervention. Nuclear threats by the United States. Ellsberg also claimed that every president since Truman, with a possible exception of Ford, threatened the use of nuclear weapons. Some of these threats were implicit, many were explicit. Many government officials and authors claimed that those threats made major contributions to achieving important policy objectives. Ellsberg's examples are summarized in the following table. <coughs> Truman 1945 to 53, Target USSR, Berlin blockade, China, 
Eisenhower, 1953-61, China-Korean War and Taiwan Strait Crisis, US officers' nuclear support to the French Berlin Crisis. Um, I will link the Wikipedia down below um, so you can go and <coughs> read it yourself in your own. Awards and Honours Ellsberg is the recipient of the inaugural Ron Ridenhauer Courage Prize, a prize established by the National Institute and the First Health Foundation. In 1978, he accepted the Gandhi Peace Award from promoting enduring peace. On September 28th, he was 2006, sorry, he was awarded the Right Livelihood Award for putting peace and truth first at considerable personal risk and dedicating his life to inspiring others to follow his example. He received the Dresden Peace Prize in 2016. He received the Olaf Palme Prize in 2018. The University of Massachusetts Amherst was acquired the papers of Daniel Ellsberg. Ellsberg has been married twice. His first marriage was to Carol Cummings, a graduate of, Rad- of Radcliffe, now Harvard College, whose father was a Marine Corps Brigadier General. It lasted 13 years before ending in divorce at her request, as he stated in his memoir, Secrets. They have two children, Robert Ellsberg and Mary Ellsberg, in 1970. He married Patricia Marks, daughter of toy maker Louis Marks. They lived for some time afterward in Mill Valley, California. They are the parents of a son, Michael Ellsberg, who is an author and journalist. <coughs> he has also written books, Secrets of a Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, Risk, Ambiguity and Decision, Dissent, Voices of Conscience, Flirting with, with Disaster, Made Love, Got War, Close Encounters, Protest and Survive, Most Dangerous Films, The Pentagon Papers, 2003, is a historical film directed by Rod Holcomb about the Pentagon Papers and General Ellsberg's involvement in their publication. The movie in which he is portrayed by James Bader documents Ellsberg's life starting with his work for Rand Corp and ending with the day on which the judge declared his espionage trial a mistrial. The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, 2009, a feature-length documentary, uh, ending with the Boys Who Said No, a 2020 documentary film about the draft resistance movement during the Vietnam War, including interviews with Ellsberg where he talks about the impact resistors had on his, decision, on his decision to risk life in prison for releasing the Pentagon Papers. Directed by Oscar-nominated filmmaker Judith, and that is Daniel Ellsberg. Obviously, I will link the, the Wikipedia as well, so you can go read, go read it yourself. Um, but yeah, that'll be it for today's episode. Um, we are marching ever closer to, you know, episode sixty to the sixtieth episode. So, I'd like to thank everyone for still being with us after all this time. Um, do share. Wonder if God got a plan for everyone. I wonder if I could take a second run. Cause I carry on getting sad and getting stuck. 
what I wouldn't give for a life that doesn't suck. I'm a moving target. 